the capacity for humankind to find out ways of figuring out about this incredible universe we live in is magnificent. But it happened often because somewhat maverick people said, I've got this theory, I know it's unpopular and I'm a heretic, but hear me out. And I'm sorry to say that science as an institution has in the last few decades behaved more and more like a church, more and more like a cult, frankly, in which you are made to sign up to a so-called consensus of truth and punished if you deviate. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Matt Ridley. Matt is a businessman, columnist and renowned author of numerous books on science and ideas. Matt writes for The Times and he's also written for The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Telegraph and The Economist. His book, include The Red Queen, Sex and the Evolution of Human Nature, The Evolution of Everything, How Ideas Emerge, and the widely praised The Rational Optimist, How Prosperity Evolves. Matt's latest book, co-authored with Alina Chan, is Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. So Matt, let's talk about your new book. I guess we should start at the beginning. At the beginning, early 2020, this strange virus starts to spread around the world And the story we all told ourselves and the story we all believed for quite a long time is that this was a disease that leapt from animals into human beings, possibly via a wet market, a notorious wet market. We had all these nightmare reports about how horrible these places are. There were jokes about bat soup. And I remember people making slightly untoward jokes about Chinese food for a long time. And that was basically the story of the origin of COVID-19. It was an accidental leap from animals into humans. But when you look at that, and this is something that you've written about in the book, there's not very much evidence for it, is there? That's right. I mean, I made the same jokes. I made. I was telling the same stories. I, I, I had a bad cold in January 2020. And I I remember saying to someone, I shouldn't have had that snake soup in Wuhan last week. (laughs) And they looked at me in alarm. And I said, I'm joking. Don't worry, I haven't been to Wuhan. (laughs) Because there there was a brief moment when it was thought to be coming from snakes. So the, the story was that the Chinese authorities said it came out of this wet market, that a lot of the early cases were associated with the market, and that it was almost certainly a repeat of SARS, which had indeed been very much associated with the wildlife markets in Guangdong in a different province. Um, And actually, they established that link very quickly. You know, they found infected animals, they found people with antibodies who were selling the animals, and they found uh, infected early cases were food handlers. So it was was easy in 2002-03 to establish um, the link between SARS and the markets. They thought it was going to be just as easy this time. I thought it was going to be just as easy this time. And it wasn't. We can get into why not. So one thing that has struck me when I've been reading about this, particularly the work that you and Alina Chan have done, is the difference between the search for the origin of COVID-19 and the search for the origin of earlier SARS outbreaks. So for example, 
If you go back to 2003, the SARS outbreak of 2003, uh, the first patients and then the origins, those kinds of things were found relatively quickly, even though that was a less technologically advanced uh, era uh, in terms of uh, searching for the origins of viruses and understanding uh, these new viruses. And yet this time, we're two years into one of the worst pandemics of modern times, we still seem to be none the wiser about the exact origins. There are lots of theories around, and I want to dig into the lab leak theory in particular. Now, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. In many ways, I'm the opposite of a conspiracy theorist. I hate conspiracy theories. I like things to be out in the open. I like to talk about what we can see and what we can discover and what we can find. But there is something slightly odd about at least the slowness with which the origins of this COVID are being searched for. And of course, the clampdown on anyone who deviates from the wet market message, which was the the, the first uh, uh, story that was put forward. How do you explain that the long time it has taken for us to get to these new theories? And still, of course, we haven't arrived at the actual proof for what caused this virus. Yeah, more than two years in with fantastically superior technology, we don't have the answer. Uh, and that's pretty surprising. And people sometimes say, well, it took them 10 years to figure out exactly where the SARS was coming from, which kind of bats in which kind of area. Um, that's true. But it, it took them a few months to figure out uh, that it was infected civet cats in markets that was infecting food handlers and that uh, those civet cats were getting it from bats. Uh, the bats were horseshoe bats. You know, problem mostly solved in a few months. Similar with Nipah, a, a disease that broke out in Malaysia a decade and a half ago. And in that case, fruit bats were uh, dropping half-eaten mangoes into uh, pig fields and the pigs were picking up the mangoes and getting the virus from it. And then people were catching it from pigs. So, you know, it should be easy to crack this stuff. And yet here we are two years later with a much more serious pandemic where everybody should be turning over every stone to find out what happened. And we don't know, not only do we not know, but an awful lot of people don't seem to want to find <laughs> out. You know, the, the World Health Organization announced it would look into it. It took a year to negotiate terms for a visit to Wuhan. And when it got there, it spent 10 days basically on a tourist trip. They went to a museum one day. They went to the wrong campus of the Wuhan Institute of Virology another day and so on. Um, and then they held a farcical press conference saying it might have come in on frozen food, for which there's no evidence and never has been. So it's as if most of the people who have the power to look into this don't want to find out. Mm. The Chinese authorities don't want to find out in case it implicates the laboratory or in case it implicates some of their wet markets. Maybe that's what they're worried about. The international scientific community seems to have zero interest in this. I mean, you know, I, I tried to get the... Royal Society to hold a debate on this. And I was told, no, no, it's of no interest to us. The Royal Society, you know, the leading scientific institution in the world, not interested in this crucial scientific question about how 5 million plus people died. I'm sorry, but, you know. Now, what about politicians? Well, I kept asking the British government over the first year, uh, what are we doing to try and use our great biomedical expertise in this country to find out the answer? And I was basically told, we're leaving it to the WHO. Right, well, that's a farce. <laughs> uh, what about 
intelligence agencies. Joe Biden asked the intelligence community in the US to come back with an answer within 90 days as to what they thought was going on. And they all came back and most of them said they don't know. And uh, four of them said, well, we think three of them said it might have, it looks more likely it came out of the market. Another one said, well, actually, we're quite confident. We're moderately confident it came out of the lab. We think that was the FBI, but we weren't told. And I thought, great, we're going to get a nice 17-page dossier from each of these agencies explaining why they've come to their conclusions. One page. That's all we ever got out of this huge inquiry that Joe Biden instituted. And basically, it said things that I had not only read in the Wall Street Journal, I'd written in the Wall Street Journal. (laughs) You know, I'm, I'm left with a strong impression that an awful lot of people don't want to find out how this started, which means they think that it started in a way that would uh, be embarrassing in some way, Mm. either embarrassing because it would um, damage the reputation of traditional Chinese medicine through the sales in markets, or damaging because it would damage the reputation of science through some of the experiments that were being done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. I couldn't agree more. The lack of keenness and uh, that desire to interrogate, which is very often or ideally the driving force of science, has just been strikingly absent when it comes to searching for the origin of COVID-19. There's a real lackadaisical approach to that. And I think the questions you've raised in relation to why that might be are incredibly important. You mentioned there, uh, of course, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So let's go back to the real beginning, I suppose. And I'd like to ask you about 2012, Southwest China, there's a mine, uh, there's lots of bats, there's lots of bats, feces, and uh, six miners become quite ill with a strange kind of pneumonia disease. The three older miners die as a consequence. Um, And tell us what happens after that in relation to what is done to examine this new strange virus that seems to have hit these miners and how it ends up in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Tell us that story from, I guess, from 2012 to really around 2019. Well, we didn't really know about this uh, little outbreak in 2012 because it wasn't reported to the World Health Organization, which it should have been Mm. um, at the time, uh, until we got hold of a thesis, a a brilliant online sleuth by the name of The Seeker in India, got into some Chinese databases in um, uh, May of 2020 and found a a thesis by a medical student at Kunming Hospital describing the treatment of these sick miners. And it was a horrific story. I mean, these guys were ill for months and three of them died and three of them eventually recovered. And the best virologists from all over China were summoned to try and work out what was going on because it looked like they had SARS and they'd been tr- they'd been shoveling back guano out of the horizontal shaft of a, of a copper mine. So uh, the immediate thought was that they must have a SARS-like virus. So they were tested by the Wuhan Institute of Virology and according to that thesis and another document, they tested positive for a SARS-like virus or SARS-like antibodies. Now, right now, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is saying, no, they didn't. We never found any evidence of it. So we've got two completely contradictory accounts of uh, whether they tested for positively for a virus. But anyway, the thesis concluded that it was almost certainly a SARS-like virus um, of bat origin that had sickened these people. 
And within weeks, three different institutions mounted expeditions to the mine shaft to try and catch bats and rodents and have a look at what was in them. One of those expeditions from Beijing did find a virus in one of the rodents, but it couldn't possibly have been the cause. It was a different kind of virus, couldn't have caused this kind of disease, uh, etc. But the Wuhan Institute of Virology team, which went there, and Wuhan is a very long way from this site. It's about 1,800 kilometers by road, which is London to Rome. You know, it's a long, long drive. That team went back seven times in two years to collect more bats from the site. And on one of those trips in uh, the spring of 2013, they found a virus in a bat that was SARS-like, but it was surprisingly different from SARS itself. And then in 2015, they got another eight viruses in the same family, in the same clade, the same group of viruses. And at the time, they implied, that, and we were told by their collaborator in the United States, Peter Daszak, that, that because it wasn't very SARS-like, they just put it in the freezer and said, well, that's it, not very interesting. In fact, what they did was take out more than one of those nine viruses uh, in 2017 and 2018 and sequence their genomes or parts of their genomes, the whole genome in the case of of the, the, the first one they'd found, which was RA44991, um, and all of this story might mean nothing, but when the epidemic broke out in January 2020, they looked in genetic databases for a match to the genome of this new virus causing sickness in humans. RA4991 was the closest match to uh, SARS-CoV-2, 96.2% the same, which is close, but not so close that it could have caused it. You know, I mean, it's it's a cousin rather than a brother of, of the virus. They published that, and they said this virus had been previously found in Yunnan. They didn't say where, they didn't say when, they didn't give a reference, they didn't give a link, and they didn't tell us critically that they had now changed its name. They didn't use the phrase RA4991, they called it RATG13, which was a brand new name we now know. They've just admitted just in the last few weeks that that was when they first made that name up. So it put us off the, the scent for several months. This in, in February and, and May of 2020, those of us who were trying to look into this, and I was looking into it, I didn't I didn't think it was through the lab or anything. I, I, you know, I didn't have a very suspicious mind at that point. I thought... Uh, it's really important to find out where this virus came from. It's almost certainly a bat virus. All SARS-like viruses are found in horseshoe bats, so that makes sense. They found a virus in a horseshoe bat seven or eight years ago. It's very closely related. Great. Which cave was it in? What was it doing? What did it look like? It took months to find mm. out that it was in a mine shaft where they had visited numerous times because Six men had got sick in possibly the first ever recorded case of human beings directly catching a SARS-like virus from a bat, which would have been huge interest to this lab, and three of them died. One of the things that struck me, because when I talk to people about this issue and about this theory, the, the lab leak theory, the possibility that this was something that the Wuhan Institute picked up in 2012 
investigated, sequenced, and it possibly leaked in some way. If you raise that, I mean, I want to get into uh, the question with you of what happens if you talk about that and the censorship and the clampdown that has taken place over the past two years. But firstly, one of the things people say is, you're a lunatic, don't be stupid. That's a conspiracy theory. But actually, lab leaks do happen, don't they? There have been numerous cases of viruses, including SARS viruses, leaking from laboratories, which I think should be more common knowledge than it currently is. So could you give us a few examples of where the kind of thing that you're theorizing in relation to COVID-19 has happened in relation to other viruses? Yeah. So uh, just to correct you on one thing, uh, it's not possible that RATG13, that that virus itself is the cause mm. of this pandemic, because although it's 98 to 99% similar for most of its genome, it's the key part of its spike gene is actually rather different. So something has, you know, either this virus has had its spike gene changed yeah. artificially or naturally in those seven or eight years, or there's some other confusion going on. But it's a, ve it's a very close relative of that that has caused this virus. There's no question about that. So you're right that laboratory leaks of viruses happen. People get infected when working in the lab or when working in the field collecting viruses. This isn't because they're sloppy or stupid. It's because accidents will happen. Quite often it occurs and people don't even realize that it's happened. So just to give a very recent example, in 2019, there was a significant brucellosis leak from a laboratory in China that infected a very large number of people. If you go back further, there's a disease called Marburg disease, which was first discovered when scientists in Germany handled uh, monkeys from Africa and picked up a disease from them. But the most interesting case, the most instructive cases are the six at least cases of SARS infecting laboratory workers in 2003 and four. Hmm. This is after the SARS epidemic is over. So there's no SARS in the community. So there's no other way to get the virus. But scientists are still studying SARS in the lab to try and understand it. And first in Singapore, then in Taiwan, then four times in Beijing, uh, a researcher gets infected while handling SARS in the laboratory despite taking all the precautions. Now, the interesting thing about those cases is that in all but one of those cases, the Taiwanese case, there was no accident or incident. In other words, they don't know how they got infected. All they know is that at some point, something must have leaked, you know, or a suit was not fully pressurized or something like that. And in the one of the Beijing cases, the infected researcher traveled a long way on a train, infected her mother who died and, you know, uh, infected several people. And it was only because SARS is nothing like as infectious as SARS-CoV-2 that we didn't get a pandemic out of that lab leak. Just one final example that I think is quite revealing. In 2007, in Purbright in Surrey, a farm picked up foot and mouth disease suddenly out of the blue. This was 13 miles from the world's leading reference laboratory for the foot and mouth virus. <laughs> <laughs> Alarm bells rang. People said, hang on a minute, this can't be a coincidence. Sure enough, it wasn't. The Purbright Laboratory for Foot and Mouth had had a, a leaking pipe 
they called in a contractor to mend the leaking pipe. The contractor had traveled from there to a nearby farm with his tractors and infected the animals on the farm. So finding a SARS-like virus starting a pandemic in the same city as the largest SARS-like virus lab in the world is equally suspicious. Yeah, equally suspicious and very, very interesting and worthy of intellectual consideration. And I want to ask you on, on that point, I want to ask you why you think this is such an important issue to dig into, which you've spent quite a long time doing uh, with a lot of success and, and you've produced this incredibly important book. Why do you think it's important that we find the origin to this? Now, that, that might seem like an obvious question, but there is such a, an unwillingness among significant sections of the establishment and the global health industry, an unwillingness to really pay attention to the question of origin. But what's the importance here? Because I guess what some people say and what people I have heard people say is, well, this is China bashing. This is motivated by a desire to really, you know, do a Trump-like thing of pinning all the blame on China. You started this. It's your fault. This is the problem. Now, of course, there may come a point when we ask questions of certain uh, laboratories and officials and, and, and ask them why they weren't behaving in the way that they ought to have been behaving. But there's something else too, isn't there? There's, there's, it's important for the future of human health that we understand the origins of such a pandemic as this one. Yes, I'm genuinely surprised by how often I'm asked this question since the book came out. I thought it was sort of obvious yeah. that one should try and find the origin of every epidemic so as to prevent the next one. I mean, that's the main reason. <laughs> um, if we knew exactly how this happened, you know, somebody was bitten by a bat while working in a lab or somebody dropped a flask in the lab or somebody bought meat of a certain species in a market or somebody was smuggling illegal wildlife and stored it in a cave where bats were living or something any story it doesn't you know don't mind which the story is that story will tell us something it will tell us what we need to crack down on now arguably we should crack down on all those things just in case particularly since we don't know but when an airline crashes you don't say look something's gone wrong we're never going to know what so let's make everything a little bit safer you say, oh my goodness, um, we didn't realize that that computer gives that error message when you're flying into a mountain, which confuses the pilot. We better change that piece of the software because it's not helping. Do you see what I mean? Mm. It's quite a good parallel there. Of course we need to find out how this happened to better be sure that we're preventing other pandemics. But there's two other reasons, I think, why it's vital that we find out. The first is that bad actors are watching this. You know, the North Korean regime, some terrorist organizations. I don't know this for sure, but I'm, I'm talking to people in the intelligence community who say it's pretty likely that they have noticed this and they've thought, oh my goodness, actually forget airliners flying into skyscrapers. If you really want to bring the world to its knees, a highly infectious virus doesn't even have to be very lethal, can do a lot of damage. Now, it can't be that difficult for uh, us to recruit a scientist who can help us get hold of such a thing from the wild, if necessary, or manipulate it in a lab. Um, why don't we try that? Because do you know what? If we do pull this off, 
The World Health Organization is going to breeze in after a year and say, don't worry, it probably came from Australian frozen food. <laughs> I mean, how, how easy is this? So, uh, you know, the message we are sending with our reluctance to investigate to some really nefarious actors in the world is genuinely worrying. And I'm not basing that just on my uh, own uh, thinking process. I've been talking to biosecurity companies that are uh, looking into this, and they are, you know, they are ringing klaxons loud and clear. This is the next issue we need to worry about. And the final reason we need to find out is because between 5 and 15 million people are dead. I don't think it's morally right to walk hmm. away saying, don't worry, the trail's gone cold, we may never know. I think we owe it to those people and their relatives to try and find out why. Okay, you mentioned the World Health Organization there, an organization I was pretty neutral on for a long part of my life, but over the past two years or so, I've come to hold them in some level of contempt. Uh, but one of the reasons I've done that is because of what I consider to be one of the most shocking elements of this story, which is the active suppression of any discussion of the lab leak theory and the way in which the original story of the wet markets and uh, the leaping of a virus from an animal into a food or into a human being, that was put out very quickly. It was supported very widely by scientific authorities. It was backed up by World Health, the World Health Organization and it was enforced essentially by big tech to the extent that anyone on on social media who deviated from it could find themselves being you know thrown off or censored in some way let's talk a little bit about this suppression and the form it took and i guess why it happened so if we start with china and the world health organization who conspired in the sense that china uh, quite early on enforced pretty secretive mechanisms and pretty authoritarian measures to ensure that public discussion of coronavirus was strictly policed and strictly watched by the authorities. And the World Health Organization tended to offer its support to the Chinese authorities for the whole of 2020 in terms of what the Chinese authorities were doing. So Talk a little bit about um, why China responded in that way and why the World Health Organization was so uncritical in the way it dealt with what China was saying about this virus. The World Health Organization learned about this outbreak basically from the media. It wasn't told by China. That should have been the first reason for a, an absolutely furious phone call to Xi Jinping from Dr. Tedros, the head of the organization. Why didn't you tell us? In fact, they learned about it from Taiwan. Taiwan said, look, we're picking up on social media that something weird is happening in Wuhan. Uh, you should know about it. To which the response, of course, from the World Health Organization was, sorry, who are you? You don't exist. Taiwan is not a country. We can't talk to you. Then in early January, the uh, Chinese government said, don't worry, there's no human-to-human -human transmission. Everybody who's getting ill, nurses, doctors, you know, accountants, um, they're all catching it from animals. Right, okay. Uh, World Health Organization should have said, that can't be right. We've seen reports on social media of healthcare workers getting infected. How can that be? But on the 14th of January, the World Health Organization tweeted, that they supported China's view that there was no human-to-human -human transmission. It was way too late to still be saying that. A week later, they had to backtrack on that. 
about then, the head of the World Health Organization went to China to see Xi Jinping and discuss the situation. And he came back and said, words cannot express his admiration for the transparency of the Chinese regime. Now, this was at a time when at least eight people had been locked up mm-hmm. and a, a lot of others uh, punished for and reprimanded for discussing the fact that a killer virus was on the loose in their hospital. You know, you remember the ophthalmologist, uh, um, Li Wenliang, mm-hmm. who sent a, a social media note saying, uh, look, guys, I've just heard that we've got a SARS-like virus in our hospital. This was on, I think, the 31st of December. That's um, uh, kind of worrying. Do take precautions. Be careful, chaps. This was just to his sort of medical friends. And for that, he was, you know, subjected to an interrogation, followed by having to sign a, a humiliating uh, sheet about how he had disgraced Chinese reputation and so on. He died a few weeks later of COVID. And a lot of people were very angry, but anyone who tried to express that anger was suppressed by the authorities. So transparency was not the right word to use about the Chinese regime at that time, but it was the word that Dr. Tedros of the World Health Organization used. The World Health Organization met to decide whether to declare a global health emergency in late January. China insisted that they do not, and they caved in. Mm. A few weeks later, they changed their minds and did declare a global health emergency with China making clear that it disagreed with the decision. So, And then there began this extraordinary dance where the World Health Organization asked China for permission to go to Wuhan with a team of scientists and investigate. And China's reply was, well, you can go with a team of Chinese scientists as long as every single member of both teams signs off on every finding, and as long as we decide who is on your team as well as who is on (laughs) our team, and as long as the terms of reference are agreed beforehand. Now, they agreed outlined terms of reference in July 2020, which was grotesquely slow, They visited China in January and February of 2021, which was obscenely slow. And when they were there, they had 12 days of visits after two days of isolation in a hotel. And on those visits, they spent one day at a museum which celebrating the triumph of Wuhan City in defeating COVID. They spent another day at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where they spent about three hours. The trouble is they went to the Jiangsa campus, the new campus, and not the Wuchang campus of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is where all the key experiments on bat viruses had been going on. And there they received assurances that it couldn't have come from that lab. And finally, they held a press conference on the 9th of February 2021, in which only five questions were allowed, and the World Health Organization said that a laboratory leak was extremely unlikely, whereas the possibility of the virus having come in on frozen food was was more likely. And we now know that they'd only been allowed to mention the laboratory leak 
if they promise to investigate it no further. Hmm. Now, that press conference was such a farce, and their report after it was so poor, that they kind of scrubbed doing a follow-up and instead tried to reconstitute a new committee to look into it further. That's called SAGO. I don't think it's even met yet. It may have met, but it certainly hasn't been to China yet. So, uh, you know, I'm afraid the effect of the existence of the World Health Organization during this crisis has been to prevent others investigating this properly. Because there's no doubt that if the World Health Organization hadn't been doing all this, the British government, the American government, the Australian government and others, Japanese government, would have got together and said, let's each supply our scientists, let's put them on the case. If China won't let them in, bad luck, but we'll do our best to try and find out by combing through the evidence what we can about how this began. And uh, instead of that, we were told, I was told personally, um, we're leaving it to the WHO. Sometimes it feels like the world is spiralling out of control. But don't worry, Spiked is here to help you make sense of it all and to push back against the regressive trends of our time. But we need your help to do that. We rely on donations from readers and listeners like yourself to keep our content freely available for all. One-off donations are hugely appreciated, but monthly donations are even better. They allow us to plan for the future and to grow. Even £5 a month is a huge help. So start donating now by going to spiked-online.com and clicking the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spiked-online.com and the red donate button. That's a very useful overview of the uh, quite despicable role that the the World Health Organization has frequently played during this pandemic. And serious questions need to be asked about a supposedly global public health body that would behave in such a way in, in, in the face of such a serious health crisis. Another wing of the health or the science establishment, which behaved in an, a less than admirable way, has been a lot of influential establishment scientists. So there are many scientists, including people like Jeremy Farrar of the uh, Wellcome Trust and others as well in the UK and in the US, who publicly in 2020 uh, poo-pooed the lab leak theory or just didn't treat it seriously at all or wrote letters to the medical press in which they said, no, 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 forget it, that's ridiculous. But we now know, following the leaking of or, or the revelation of certain emails that they were writing to each other at the time, that actually they did entertain this theory. They did think it was a possibility, uh, but they decided to say something different in the public realm. And I wanted to ask you, what that tells us about the state of science, I suppose, when you can have that level of, I don't know if you'd call it dishonesty or certainly an, an element of duplicity where you say one thing, but you slightly think another. What do you think that tells us about science? And, and what do you think was the motivation behind that? Was it because they were anti-Trump? They didn't want to give anything to the Trump administration in terms of allowing him to posture against China? Were they defending the reputation of science itself by not wanting to give away how much they may have worked with the Wuhan Institute or had knowledge of what was happening? What drove that very anti-scientific behavior by many leading scientists? Yeah, well, let me start by reminding you that I am a fervent champion of science. Mm. I've spent my entire career celebrating the achievements of science. I think the achievements of science are humanity's greatest 
achievements bar none. I mean, I I would put, you know, the discoveries of evolution and DNA and deep geological time and uh, black holes and everything. I, w- I would keep that and throw the Mona Lisa and Hamlet in, in the bin. That's not because I'm a <laughs> Philistine, because I love the Mona Lisa and Hamlet too, but because I just think these are incredible things. And, and the, the capacity for humankind to uh, find out ways of figuring out about this incredible universe we live in is magnificent. But it happened that often because somewhat maverick people said i've got this theory i know it's unpopular and i'm a heretic but I, let me you know hear, hear me out and i'm going to do these experiments and i'm going to gather this evidence etc cetera, etc cetera. it didn't happen because scientists got together and said this is what we know to be true and the rest of you are ignorant and dangerous fools for not believing it notice that word believe and i'm sorry to say that science as a philosophy is fantastic, but science as an institution has in the last few decades behaved more and more like a church, more and more like a cult, frankly, uh, in which you are made to sign up to a so-called consensus of truth and um, punished if you deviate. You'll pick up echoes of what happened to Giordano, Bruno, and Galileo in what I'm saying here. So there's, you can you can tell from my voice that you know there's an element of kind of feeling of personal betrayal mm. about this. Uh, you know, I've written wonderful things about how wonderful these guys are for for decades, and now I just feel they're letting the side down. What actually happened was that two very influential articles appeared, both towards the end of February. They were first uh, made available, finally published a bit later. One in the Lancet and one in Nature Medicine. And both of them said, we can rule out any lab leak scenario. Mm. And both of them used actually rather weak arguments. At the time, I didn't read them very carefully. And I thought, okay, well, these guys seem to know what they're talking about. Scientists wouldn't put their name to this if they didn't have good evidence. Uh, And I went around telling people, no, no, you can rule the lab leak out. And now I know that the very authors of those articles, Jeremy Farrer signed on to the Lancet one, four of the authors, four of the five authors on the Nature Medicine ones, were on a phone call on the 1st of February 2020, organized by Jeremy Farrer, Patrick Valance, Anthony Fauci, and Francis Collins in the US, uh, and were expressing the view that it was probable, not possible, probable, mm. that this thing had been manipulated, not leaked from, manipulated in a laboratory, going far farther than I went six months later when I was saying, well, it might have leaked, but I don't think it was manipulated. And I'm still only 50-50 thinking it was leaked. These guys were saying 60-40, 70-30. And they were saying that on the 1st of February, on that Sunday. But also on that call, we now know from... Uh, emails that were eventually released um, to a congressional committee, they were already starting to say, yes, but we need to write articles saying the opposite. And within three days, by the 4th of February, they had drafted the Nature Medicine article and circulated it to these senior scientists. And the senior scientists, people like Anthony Fauci, were therefore very well aware of the view that 
quite a lot of experienced virologists thought it was probable that the virus mm. had been in a laboratory. And yet Fauci was telling Donald Trump that that possibility could be ruled out. And as far as we can see, in those three days between the 1st and 4th of February, nothing changed. There was no new scientific information that could enable them to say, oh, we now realize it couldn't possibly have been in a lab. You know, they're not saying it probably wasn't in a lab. They're saying it definitely wasn't in a lab. Mm -hmm. Three days after saying they thought it probably was. And when I make this point to scientific friends, they say, you're being unfair. People change their mind in science. You're in favor of that. Why can't they change their mind? They saw new evidence. And I say, what new evidence did they see? Are you sure they didn't change their mind for political mm. rather than scientific reasons? Mm. Because that's what it looks like in their emails. They say things like, we shouldn't air this possibility because of the damage it might do to science in general and Chinese science in particular. They say, we shouldn't air these views because of the effect it might have on international harmony. A very sort of Xi Jinping sort of word to use, actually. <laughs> now, you know, I've got to be careful not to sound angry here because it's not, you know, this isn't personal to me. But, you know, here was I defending what they'd written, not mm. knowing they'd said something completely different in private, unaware that anything had changed to change their minds, and then experiencing this extraordinary censorship where literally every time a lab leak was mentioned, for example, by Senator Tom Cotton in the US, um, uh, it was labeled as a debunked conspiracy theory, or it was totally censored by Facebook, for example, luckily not on Twitter, where a conversation was able to get going among more open-minded people to start discussing the possibility. And now, two years later, we're still having conversations with some of these senior scientists on places like Twitter, and they're saying things like, yeah, no, of course we still think a lab leak is a possibility, but we think you're being ridiculous for, mm. for, for speculating about it. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> a bit rich, Frank. <laughs> that is a bit rich. Following on from that, I want to ask you why you think the tide is turning somewhat. I mean, you've just described that there is still a somewhat rash response to people who raise this theory, who want to dig down into it. You People will be denounced as ridiculous and obsessive and all those kinds of things. But alongside that, there has been a slight softening of the, of the severity with which discussion is being clamped down on. And I wonder if that's political too. So for example, a few months ago or a year ago, perhaps, Biden kind of gave a green light to looking into all possibilities with COVID-19. And then magically overnight, social the social media giants decided that it would be okay for people to talk about it on social media platforms. You have the New York Times that has um, changed its uh, the use of its wor the word debunked in relation to the lab leak theory and now talks about unproven. You have fact-checking websites that have gone from calling it a debunked conspiracy theory to saying that this is something that is now disputed and discussed and so on. I mean, that's a pretty significant turnaround and very little explanation for some of these people as to why they behaved so censoriously uh, to begin with. And now that they're being a tiny bit more relaxed, how do you understand that turning of the tide, the, the, the slightly more openness to, to talking about this theory 
in comparison to 2020, for example? Well, you say more openness, but in some ways, there's been a counter-revolution right. <laughs> in the last few months. Uh, in May 2021, you're right, there was a huge sea change. It came about partly because of the disappointment of the World Health Organization's uh, report, uh, the fact that a group of scientists got together and wrote a letter to, to science saying, look, we do need to look into both possibilities. And that kind of gave the green light. And at the same time, the Biden administration commissioned the intelligence community to do it. And, and Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State um, in the US, has actually been very fairly robust on this, saying this possibility needs to be considered. So, there were, you know, there was a sudden clearing of the air, a great improvement in the conversation. And as you say, a backing off from some of this censorship. Well, I'm sorry to say it's largely being reimposed. We right. were booked, for example, as the authors of this book, to go on CNN. And then, mysteriously, we were unbooked. And we said, why? And we said, because our health editor says we shouldn't be publicizing your book. Um, we're getting a lot of that. You know, we're, we're hearing pe people get enthusiastic, even people in the BBC, hmm. breathe it carefully, you know, have, have <laughs> considered talking about a lab leak and then quickly back off when their seniors hear about it. So I'm, I'm sorry to say that there is actually a pretty concerted attempt at the moment to shut it down again mm. as a conversation. Um, uh, and, you know, they, they use, you know, they say things like, ah, oh, but your book goes too far or it's, it's disgracefully ignorant or something. Um, two, two senior scientists have now told me on Twitter that my book is, that our book is um, ignorant, foolish, wrong, uh, you know, nasty, blah, 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 but they haven't read it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Which is some kind of, you know, that must be praise indeed. So th there is a genuine worry in science, academic science, that speculating about a lab leak will, uh, will encourage anti-scientific forces. Mm. Anti-vaxxers and all that mm. lot will get a, the new wind in their sails. People who don't want biotechnology to happen, I thoroughly want biotechnology to happen. I think it's a very good thing, but there we are. And so there will be a campaign to shut down science generally and to mm. make it more difficult for scientists to do it. And by the way, <laughs> scientists are on the whole quite left-wing people and they have no time for libertarians usually, but boy, do they sound libertarian when you start talking about more regulation of their laboratories. <laughs> Us, we know what we're doing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, of course I have some sympathy for that. You know, if it turns out that we are falsely accusing them of potentially leaking this virus, and yet we end up with over-regulation of biotechnology uh, and less money going into science, I think that's a bad thing. But all the more reason then to find out yeah. so as to clear the air. That actually brings me on to uh, my final question I want to ask you, which is probably a bit too much of a broad one to end on, but let's give it a go. You, you mentioned there how one of the concerns that is raised by the people who want to suppress or silence the, the discussion of the lab leak theory is that it could potentially feed into a general anti-scientific climate, anti-vaxxers, you know, the more hysterical wing of public discussion today. But of course, the other possibility, which you've already talked about, is that it's the behavior of some of the official scientists in relation to COVID that could end up uh, trashing the reputation of science. You know, the, the secret nature of some of their discussions, the dishonesty of how they presented things in public, 
the unwillingness of the World Health Organization to do what it should have been doing. And of course, right through to modelers getting a lot of stuff wrong, especially recently in relation to Omicron, which we were told would be the worst variant so far, or, or, or rather the projection. I know they will always say these are not predictions. These are projections. And the projections were really, really, really wrong. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think will be the the future of science after the past two years? The past two years, all the things that have happened, the things that you talk about in your book and which you've been talking about now, the mistakes scientists made, which is perfectly understandable. We all make mistakes. But in the round, how do you think science and expertise will be judged going forward after the experience of the past two years? I very much fear that we're going to end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Mm. That because of the way scientists are closing rank and saying, the modeling's fine, or no, no, it couldn't possibly have been a lab leak, they end up tainting the whole of science with the bad behavior or potentially bad behavior of, of some of their colleagues. Yeah. If science would say, look, there's a ton of things we don't know. We don't really know whether masks work. We've spent the last five years telling you they don't, but we now would like to try and say they do, but we can't be sure about that. Uh, if they'd said modeling isn't a great way of telling us about the future, it can help in certain circumstances, but please don't read too much into these models. We're bound to be getting things wrong. If they'd said some of our colleagues in some labs around the world have been doing experiments that we now realize were unwise, and we'd like to row back from that and bring up, draw up some new rules about what experiments on potentially pathogenic viruses should be uh, performed. Um, if they'd done all that, I'd have think I think they'd have enhanced the reputation of science generally and isolated uh, science from the problems. But because they've not on the whole done that and they've sort of said look take it or leave it either you believe absolutely everything you believe in the models as fervently as you believe in the vaccines i don't i think the vaccines are fantastic i think the models are poor frankly uh, but but i'm told that makes me anti-science no it doesn't it makes me anti-model <laughs> um, you know because if we end up with with a view that science and expertise generally have um, uh, been tarnished throughout, then we end up encouraging the anti-vaxxers and every other, you know, uh, fruitcake idea. And there are some fruitcake idea ideas out there, and there are some evil ideas too. And um, you know, we're giving them sucker by the yeah. way we, we've fallen into their hands. Matt Ridley, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Brendan. Great to talk. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.